Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. In this UX Radio episode, host Laura Federoff is pleased to introduce Whitney Quisenberry, who's contributed impressive value to the field of user experience and research. She's written three books, the newest entitled A Web for Everyone, Designing Accessible User Experiences with Sarah Horton. The book's focus is on building accessibility into every part of a website or app design so that everyone can use it. Whitney Quisenberry's also dedicated to usability in civic life and has worked with a number of notable organizations like Pearson, National Library of Medicine, and the National Cancer Institute, to name a few. And now your host, Lara Federoff. Let's um, share with the audience kind of how you got started, how you got interested in all of this. I went to college. I thought I was going to be, you know, a university professor and kind of teaching English literature or something. No idea what I was going to do with my life. Discovered theater. And one day, someone asked me if I could write. And because they had some documentation they had to write on a product they built uh, for a bank in New York. And I thought, yeah, I could do this. A little money. Not bad. And the next thing I knew, I was turning down theater jobs because I was so entranced by this new thing called hypertext. This was before the web, and I was amazed at how you could put information together and connect it up. And instead of each thing being some, you know, sort of tough job to find, we could make it connect. We went on. I did. I became the world expert in hypertext, which wasn't saying much because we didn't have that many users, but. Um, I did tech support, I did the documentation, I became the product manager. And when the web hit, um, all the original hypertext programs kind of died in, in the face of it, and we had to really think about where we were going next. So that was how I got from um, from theater to, to user experience, was just kind of following an opportunity that came along. And it's a great thing to fall back to, to look at the similarities between theater and UX. I do think there are a lot of similarities. They're both a live interaction with someone. In both cases, there's a kind of conversation that's happening between the people imagining the experience and creating the experience and the people enjoying the experience. And in both cases, the real experience happens when someone uses it. Not only is the audience having the experience, but the actors are also in the room with them. And there's a feedback loop that happens. It's a storytelling loop where the actor is the play influences the audience, the audience influences the play, and it changes night to night. So maybe that's why I was pretty comfortable from the beginning with the idea that um, the things that we create in UX, the digital, the digital experiences are also mutable and changeable and respond to people and context. Definitely. I remember when I was in theater and not having a speaking part and the director telling everyone that every single role is really important and it's um, part of the whole system, part of the whole story. And I think that relates so well also. Absolutely. I mean, we know that whether all of the disciplines that go into user experience are present in one person or in a whole team of people, they all have to be there. If you leave one out, there's, there's a gap. Some of the new apps have been really successful in turning things into a conversation, even like um, the way Simple has the safe to spend amount, right? So it doesn't say you're overspending. It says your safe to spend amount is $58.25, right? So you've said, I want to really save for that trip. And it said, I'll help you do that. 
Sometimes it's hard to come up with a story for a business case if you're looking at something serious like business accounting software we were talking about, how that's kind of difficult for companies to imagine that there's a story there. What, what would you say to them? The task of doing accounting is not that interesting in itself. The task of doing the accounting is part of a larger goal. You know, of course, it's a story. The story might be um, we're a business and we send we send our, our our staff around the world, you know, to to work on our work work on our products. And when they come back, we need to cover their expenses. So the business's story might be I need this information in a proper way so that I can repay you. And the the um, staff person's story might be I'd really like to get paid paid back for all these expenses. And accounting department software might be we have an obligation to make sure that it's done legally but it's really a conversation if you think about it it's you know the staff person comes in and they says hey I've just been on a trip let me tell you about what I spent so let's talk about the conference UX Hong Kong you talked about how you use stories and personas at your workshop as well as incorporating accessibility into the early stages of design well Dan Zook from Hong Kong was helping organize the first conference or speakers for the first conference and it was it was just a great group of people I just loved it it was in Beijing the next year was Shanghai and I went back and then I've gone back every few years since then the conference is huge because it's hard for people who live in China to get visas to travel outside of China and so this is the big conference uh, it's the big practitioner conference and there's something like eight workshops every day or ten workshops every day and then pl- and plenaries in the morning it's a big gathering do you see any of the Euro IA community there as well? Oh, absolutely. People come mm-hmm. from, from all over. They have speakers from the UK, people, speakers from Europe, and speakers from the US. I think they're looking for who are people doing exciting things and bringing them into China so that, you know, we are kind of an, an international community and it's nice to make it fully international to be able to include everyone. Definitely. So are you presenting at this one? I am. I'm doing two workshops. One is on, it's on story, on creating stories for your personas. That is, what can you do to use your personas once you've made them? I think a lot of people make personas and then they don't know what to do with them next. So we have three exercises we're doing on different things you can do with your personas to help inform design more and to help evaluate design ideas. And that's one. The second one is based on the new book called Web for Everyone. And we're going to look at eight personas for people with disabilities who use the web and think about what not only what design what we need to do design for them but also who are they similar to what are the things that someone say who's fatigued easily what do they need and who else might need that so where can we find the places where good ux for everyone equals good accessibility while we're on the topic Um, I really liked what you said when you were talking about beginning the design with a broader beginning, like, you know, thinking about it in terms of all people, not just people with special needs. Who we do our user research with is part of how we scope our projects. And and if the person, if the people in your head you're designing for are narrow, they're just, they're people just like you and maybe just like you, but they live somewhere else, then you're going to get a product, an app that works for people just like you. But if you start to think about a broader range of people, people with different capabilities, people with different perspectives, maybe people who don't love technology as much as we do, maybe people who love it more, right? Maybe people who use different technologies, then all of that thinking goes into your work. 
I've been thinking a lot recently about how we get a broader range of people into our research. And that may mean giving up statistical significance in favor of breadth of input. Um, it might mean making sure we can do user research with people maybe who interact differently with the web, who are blind, who are low vision, who speak a different language, who um, use different things than a mouse and a keyboard. And how can we make them part of our, our work so that we're not just thinking about them at the end? Because we know, I mean, from usability to user experience to user research to content strategy to IA, whatever discipline you're in, we know that the thinking in the beginning is what makes it come out right at the end. The more the more people you know in relationship to your the thing you're working on, the design you're working on, the more all of those influences filter into your design. Right. To see what's visible and to make that visible, but also to hide the mechanics of things, yet in a positive way. Even with forms, we need to question every single field. Is this crucial? Is it necessary? Why is it necessary? How can yep. we make sure that we're communicating that to the user in the correct context? And don't collect data we're not going to do anything with. Yes. I mean, in the days of the NSA, <laughs> we have to be really thinking hard about what data we're collecting and what, what we're going to do with it. Because don't ask the question just for fun. You're, you're wasting server space, you're wasting users' time, you're eroding trust with every question you ask. Someone has one more excuse to leave. Let's not encourage people to be fatigued and leave. Yeah, the easier we can make forms, the better. And, and there should be an action to how we're going to use that information for every single field. We should know that when we're building and designing the form. The immediacy of feedback, I think, is so crucial even within that individual field, instead of getting to the end, hitting the submit button, and then seeing every different place with red text where you have to go back and fix it. When I'm filling out a form to get a mortgage, my goal isn't to fill out the form. My goal isn't even really to get a mortgage, although that's my immediate goal. My goal is to have a house. And so if you can think about the house goal, what's that goal? When I worked with the Open University, we worked on the online course catalog, and people's goal isn't to study chemistry. It might be to be a scientist, right? Or your goal might be to go to university because you want a better job. And so when we flipped the information around and said, you know, what will you learn here and what will this help you become? Then people would, when we, want, when we did usability testing, people really latched onto that goal and they would say, huh, you mean I really have to study this because that will get me there, not, oh, I don't want to have to study chemistry. It's an emotional motivator. Absolutely. Um, what journey is the person on? And, you know, the university is on a journey with you. And I think part of what, when a, when a website or a form or an app anticipates what you want, all of a sudden you're saying, wow, they get it. They know what I'm doing, right? And you trust them more. And now you, and you trust them because they've entered into a conversation with you, even though that conversation may have been designed three years before by people you'll never meet. I really like the story you're telling about um, the opera singer. I would love for you to share that with the audience. <laughs> sure. Um, one of the things that I, I, we, we do in theater is we try never to let the backstage appear on stage, right? You, you want to you know, preserve the illusion. And... I was went to an opera at, at the Met, actually, 
And there was a, I forget which one it was, but there was a big scene with, you know, a battle going on and all the extras marching around and singing and the orchestra going wild. And the hero is sort of at the top of the stage singing and singing and singing. And at the end, he's, he's killed through the spear through him. And, you know, you know, that's an effect, right? I mean, he wasn't really killed. There wasn't really a spear. I mean, that went right through his body. And so how did they do it? When did he, it's an effect, right? It's strapped on. And when did they do it? So we went back the next day and we put our hands around our eyes so we could look and just watch this guy. And what happened was that a stagehand slipped up behind him, walked down on stage and helped him clamp this thing on. And the reason nobody saw it was that it was timed so it all happened at a moment when we were watching the cannon go off at the other side of the stage. In magic, they call this misdirection. So they were, we, they took advantage of a moment when the whole audience was looking left to do something over on the right. Now think about a website that preloads things based on where they think the user's going, right? That's a kind of misdirection as well. Um, it's about creating an illusion that we know that we're having, that this is happening. We can create an illusion of conversation or an illusion of immediacy to fill the gaps where there isn't real immediacy. Well, let's talk a little bit about your new book and about accessibility. Um, what inspired you to begin writing this book? I was one of those people who thought accessibility was a good thing and someone else would do it. And as I've been working in elections, I've really started to see how important it is because whatever one thinks about access to computers games when people can't access information about elections or maybe there's an online registration voter registration form but if 10 percent of the population can't use it then that's not fair i mean it's not it gets into serious stuff like civil rights and so that made me take start to really take seriously accessibility and as we worked on the book sarah and i I spent a long time talking about who the audience for this book was, and we finally decided that the audience for the book were people who were already thinking, yep, I'm going to make what I'm working on accessible, but wanted to know how. And much of the work on accessibility is all about checklists and rules, and, you know, people's eyes glaze over on that. And so we wanted to write something that would help people build accessibility into their work. So if you're a content strategist, you might be thinking about how to write headings, how to structure the information so that it's got good headings and good information structure. That helps everyone. It helps visual readers because you've got the visual of the headings. But if those headings exist, they can be coded correctly and now screen readers can read them. And if you're working with people who uh, don't read as well, they can read the headings and get the gist of the page. All those little decisions. So we focus the book not around disability, but around user experience. Um, we came up with a framework we call the, the Accessible UX Principles. So people first is the, is the most important first one. Then, you know, having a clear purpose, um, building a solid structure, um, making the interaction easy, and making the wayfinding helpful, making the presentation clear and the language plain, and the media accessible all helps us add up to um, universal usability and creating delight, not just getting past the barriers, but actually creating something that's delightful for everyone to use. Good UX and good accessibility are pretty darn close to the same thing. 
let's dive a little bit deeper into that so people understand it better. I mean, you have a headline that gives you the gist of, of what it is. It, it's informational. But how do you take it to that next level when you're programming it to make it readable um, and accessible? Okay, so if I have a heading on the page, right, I could make it visual by making it large and blue and putting a line under it. But if I haven't marked it as a heading, maybe it's a second level heading, so it's an H2. If I've marked it as an H2, then, then the technology knows how to read it, right? Browsers know what it is. And by the way, search engine optimization people say that you want to have good headings and those headings need to have good keywords in them because search engines assume that the things that are marked as headers, headings are more important than just text. So a screen reader or any kind of assistive technology that is specialized technology to help people with disabilities, it's really just another browser, right? And now we're just saying there's one more kind of technology that needs to be able to read the code and have the code, the semantics of the code, match the semantics of the content. So if, if, if the content is meant explanatory header, it gets marked with a heading tag in the HTML. Think about how you visually scan a page. You look at the page and you can kind of scan down the headings, or maybe you're even in you know, a, a more flexible thing like to, uh, where you can collapse the headings and you can see just the headings and open and close the ones you want to read. That's kind of what a screen reader does. One mode it can work in. The user can say, you know, screen reader, please read me all the headings. And they can jump from heading to heading very quickly. So they're scanning with their ears. Another step might be thinking about how to make sure that your that the areas of the screen are marked up. Maybe you have a big mega menu at the top of the page. Well, no one wants to listen to that over and over again. So is there a way to skip over it? You could do that with an anchor link, or you could do that by marking that whole section as navigation. And now someone can say, oh, I don't really want navigation. Take me to the next section on this page. And once you've done that, then you can adjust. So if someone has a tall, narrow screen or a wide, short screen, you can adjust the presentation to fit the page as well. So you could think about someone with low vision who needs to make the text really large, for instance, to be able to read it. And all of a sudden they can. All of your um, presentation is in a style sheet and, they, and maybe black text on a white background is really hard for them to read. They can change the colors to work for their eyes. Programs like Readability use this to be able to smooth away all the background. Like a lot of sites, if you go into the print view, it takes away all the stuff around the edges and just leaves the middle of the content. Well, that's great because it's, it takes away distractions. So if you're someone who is distracted by all the colors of the ads around the edges, you can now focus on the text. That kind of flexibility to user context helps in lots of different ways. But wouldn't it be nice if the software could just say, would you like me to show you this part of the screen alone? Or let me jump, let me jump you to right to that part of the screen, even if it's a long page. Before we end today's interview, I wanted to ask you, what advice would you give to designers today, whether they're just getting started or uh, making a career transition or they've been in the field? What would you say to them? Well, I'd say two things. I'd say that when you get started, I think a lot of your effort goes into, a lot of your attention goes into your own skills and discipline and making sure that they're on top of the game. But think about the people who will use what we create. So if you start your work from people, then I think everything else happens on its own. You, you can learn the skills, 
but find ways to make sure that you're staying engaged with the audience, whether that's through quick feedback sessions or big usability tests, doesn't really matter. Um, as long as you're, as long as you and your whole team have a way to stay engaged, probably the most important advice I could give anyone. And what do you foresee to be one of your most valuable contributions that you'd like to leave to society? Gosh, I think it's the notion that what we do is important. That way we've gotten what we wanted. We, you know, people who got into web and digital early kept saying this is going to change the world, and we have changed the world. You know, just like Peter Parker with great responsibility, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Now we have to think about our stuff not as toys, but as things that change people's lives, and um, and, th and think about how we can do that for the better. And I hope that the things I've done have been a part of helping us think that way. Well, thank you so much for being on UX Radio today. Thank you, Lara. It was great talking to you. Today's episode was produced by Perry Norton with original music from Cameron Michelle.